0: The readings these last couple of weeks in Lent, past couple of weeks in Lent, seem to challenge us to understand just how much we trust God. Not to just believe, but to trust, really trust that God is at work in our lives right now, and God is urging us into a deeper relationship with God. Now, one of the best examples of the lack of trust in God is found in today's Genesis reading. Abram not yet Abraham, that that comes later, has just defeated his enemies and accumulated a great treasure. He's blessed. There's no question about it. But he wants more. He and Sarai are getting on into years, and and they're without an heir to all of the kingdom. He questions God about his timing. How's he at this late age going to have an heir? And God takes him out into the star-filled night, Ask him to look up and count the stars if he can, and tells him his descendants will outnumber even the stars. And on this vision alone, Abraham Abram relents and relaxes a bit, and he believes. He trusts that God will meet God's end of the obligation. And in so doing, Abram is reckoned as righteous. That is, he's back in right relationship with God. Abram needed a sign, some proof that God would deliver. And the vision of a night sky filled with countless stars was the sign he was looking for, the sign he needed to trust God. When I was about 17 or 18 years old and coming to grips with my sexuality, I remember repeatedly asking God for a sign, any sign, the one I was feeling was okay with him. I'd stand under a tree, or by a stream, and wait, barely breathing for some kind of sign, like a leaf falling, or a a frog croaking, or a fish, maybe. I don't really know if I really wanted an answer. What I was feeling was already very real to me, but I wanted some kind of okay from God. If there's any lingering doubt that our sexuality is not a choice, I invite you to go back with me to the late 1970s in a conservative southern Indiana town. About 5,000 people or so. The movie Grease was playing at the the drive-in, I remember. And I think we were all in our own way trying to live that model of universal conformity that the film idealized. I invite you to come into the head of a talkative, maybe too smart for his own good young man, who was struggling with his secret among the friends and family that he had known all his life. The only friends and family he knew. And there was not yet a will and grace. There was no Ellen DeGeneres. There was nothing like a gay-straight alliance at the school. Nothing, Not even close. There were no models. There was no internet. Homosexuality was still a mental illness. And acting on any of these urges was still illegal in the state of Indiana. I couldn't turn to my church for help, and my parents would have been deeply hurt if I said anything to them. When I think back on the agony I experienced those years, the loneliness, I know this was no choice. I used to spend hours walking the late-night deserted streets of my small town, looking up at the sky, the same stars that Abram looked at, that he saw in his vision. And I'd ask for a sign. I'd ask for some relief from the pain that I felt. The pain of being different. Now there was a street lamp that was not far from my house that when I'd walk by it would flicker on and then go off. My self-centered adolescent self took this as the sign I was looking for. Now I didn't walk by that street lamp too much because I didn't really want to test God's goodwill. But that flickering street lamp was a reminder, an assurance that God had something in store for me, something that quite possibly led to me being here in front of you right now. But my 17-year-old self didn't trust enough, didn't believe enough in God. Relying on signs is tricky business because it seems to force God's hand. In John's Gospel, Jesus complains about the people's need for signs as a mark of immature faith. And that was me at age 17. And if I could go back to that frightened adolescent, I'd simply tell him to be patient, to wait, to not rely on street lamps or leaves falling or frogs croaking, but to wait and just trust. Today's psalm ends with a reminder, very similar to that, A reminder to be patient. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I think we learn to trust God, to have faith through our experiences. The life of faith, the life of belief is grounded in the mystery and the pain and the awe and the suffering that we all experience in our lives. It's when we look back on those experiences that we see the hand of God at work. I look back on my adolescent self and I see that it was precisely the fact of being different that likely saved me, that got me out of that small town. Because by being different, I sought out experiences and places and people that affirmed my difference, even celebrated my difference. It calls me now to find and support others who feel different. I look back and I see God at work in those experiences. And today it deepens my faith, my trust, that God is still at work in the world, still at work in my life. In the book of Hebrews, faith is defined as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Unlike a flickering street lamp, my assurance is in reflecting on where God gave me hope. My conviction didn't require a sign, something seen, but required a feeling of God being at work throughout the journey. Today's Gospel reading is, on the surface, kind of a strange one for the second week of Lent. It's a strange choice. Because it doesn't depict, as we would expect, one of the great major events in Jesus' march to Palm Sunday and to the cross and to the resurrection. It's a strange little interstitial, really, because it follows Jesus' parables of the fig tree and the yeast and the bread. Jesus has just declared the difficulty of salvation and how few people are going to be able to make it into the kingdom of heaven and how those first will be last and the last will be first. And he's interrupted by a couple of Pharisees. They interrupt him to warn of Herod's murderous intentions. Instead of being afraid, which he had all right to be, I mean, Herod's intention was to kill him. Jesus is undeterred and responds with reciting his busy agenda of what's to come up. He's got exorcisms and healings today, tomorrow, and on the third day. He's so sure of his mission of bringing the kingdom of God that he's not worried about some second-rate minion of the state, some Herod Antipas, and his murderous intents. He knows that he's destined to do God's salvific work in Jerusalem, not before. Herod's just a fox, destined to slink around in the darkness, never able to show the courage of a lion or of an eagle, just a fox. And Jesus says, ah, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. He knows the great danger of will come from his mission to end Jerusalem, and instead of responding with fear or justifiable anger, he wishes only to gather their children under his wing as a hen broods over her chicks. Jesus' response to evil is love. His response to evil is only with love. As I wrote this, news of another horrific mass murder in Christchurch, New Zealand, circulated. Another right-wing attack on a place of worship, not unlike the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting last October, which I also stood here and lamented. At least 50 dead and a whole community scarred. And I find myself struggling again for some kind of response. Thoughts and prayers, of course, but how do we respond to evil? And I think of Jesus' response to his imminent crucifixion in his short lament on Jerusalem. And he responds only with love. He broods over Jerusalem as a hen broods over her chicks. What does that tell us about our response to evil? What does a love-filled response to this murderous event look like? How might love comfort the victims? How might love bring peace to the hate-filled killer? You know, we all have Herods in our lives. People or things that threaten us, our safety, our health. They may be real, they may be imagined. They may be gathering at the border or in a crime-ridden street nearby Little Rock. Today's short gospel reading reminds us to not let the Herods of our imagination get in the way of the real work we have to do. We have our own exorcisms. Exorcisms of the cultural evil that resulted in another deadly mosque shooting. We have our own healings of the pain experienced by our Muslim sisters and brothers right now, of the pain suffered by all victims of racial injustice and racial violence. We have a lot of work to do, a busy agenda today, tomorrow, and on the third day. This gospel reminds us that while we can be comforted by looking back and seeing God at work in our lives in the past, in the awe, the experience, the mystery, and the suffering that we all experience that brings us to where we are today, here. We are also called to continue Christ's work of bringing the kingdom of God into this world. Jesus didn't let Herod deter him from his salvation work, and nor should we. Tonight I plan to go outside and look up at the stars in this I'm going to look up at the stars in the sky. The same ones that Abram saw. The same ones I saw at age 17. (laughs) And I'm going to have faith. I'm going to believe. And I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust that God is still at work in this world. No matter what the evil is happening. That in spite of all the things that may lead me to a different conclusion, I know that God is here. And we've got a lot of work to do. got a lot of work to do today, tomorrow, and the third day. Amen.